0: If you remain standing and have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 4, verse 1 through 26 is today's passage. But for the sake of time, we'll read the rest of the chapter later. But for now, I'll just read verses 1 through 10. Hear now God's holy word, John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came down, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, does anyone here while driving enjoy seeing upcoming signs that say detour ahead? I mean, really, do you just really get, this is my chance to shine and and I'm ready for this. I mean, who delights in getting to a place or an appointment later than planned besides introverts? I mean, who likes to, to have that hurdle? Some of us start to get pretty anxious when we see all these massive neon signs that tell you the end is near, detour ahead. I struggle with this because I'm so very GPS dependent. Please don't judge me, but I am very, very, if it's five minutes away, you better believe I'm still putting that into my phone. I'm sorry, I can't go anywhere without it other than Portillo's is south, and then north is my apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Other than those two things, I need help. I'm sorry. But sometimes, GPS doesn't account for new detours and new construction routes. And so I've had experiences where I've just had to guess my way back to the proper route down the line. Because GPS kept yelling at me to go back to the road that was completely blocked off. GPS, you don't, it's usually a lady uh, in her voice she's not yelling, it's a calm voice, but always trying to get me back to a a place that is forbidden for me to go to. And so one time, GPS, she thought she was so smart, knew there was this hour-long traffic jam ahead of me when I was kind of in uh, Ohio or Pennsylvania, and I was making my way uh, to Virginia, and it was like there's an hour delay, there's an accident. So Robin, I would like you to go to this route. And I said, I am dependent on you, so yes, I will follow only to realize that she, meaning GPS, (laughs) took me up into the mountains. But what GPS didn't understand in her limited computer abilities was that a huge ice storm was beginning to form. And so for the next two hours, huge inclines and declines, I was riding that brake going down in my little Corolla, swerving all around, thinking, GPS, we're gonna have a talk after all this. I would have gladly just waited the extra hour, then go through this adventure. So somebody really likes detours. Usually we all find them a whole big mess and uh, and nuisance, and, and they like that, but for me, it is such a chore. But this was not the case with our Savior, Jesus. I'm not saying Jesus liked detours because he liked the long, windy route. But Jesus was completely fine with detours when traveling because the journey with all their little detours was sovereignly planned out and was part of his mission and plan. And we'll get to that at the end of this sermon. We just read uh, from these first 10 verses and verse 3 through 4 where Jesus, having finished up his ministry for now in the uh, southern region called Judea, is is, is, is pivoting now to the long journey ahead to Galilee way up north near the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, one of his major bases for his ministry. I mean, this is a long journey ahead of him and for his disciples. But to get to Galilee from Jerusalem in a straight shot north, one would have to go through the region called Samaria. And for most people, the easy way is to just go around to the east, make two crossings over the River Jordan to get to Galilee. Why? Because Jews did not want to intermingle at all with Samaritans not at all there was actually a law that was passed that prohibited eating and dealing with Samaritans at all and so yes the the straightest route would have been just go straight north but the majority I mean the vast majority of Jews if they had to make that journey would just go around but John the writer and apostle tells us there in this verse that he had to pass through Samaria he had to pass through Samaria the scholars note what I just shared earlier, that nobody had to go through Samaria if they didn't want to. There was a less conflict-oriented route. So theologians surmise that John was purposeful in writing that he had to go through Samaria because of one of the events that will unfold in today's narrative. This confrontation, this conversation with an unnamed Samaritan woman at the well. And so Jesus is sitting at the well alone around uh, 12 p.m., thirsty himself, weary from the journey, presumably, because of all uh, the talk thus far in the Gospel of John is, is Christ's divinity. So we're focusing on his divinity, divinity, divinity. We see glimpses now that he's also truly man. And we also see his utter humanity. And so pick up it again in verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman a Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Or as some would translate this last part, Jews had nothing in common with Samaritans because of this legislation that prohibited intermixing and a whole lot more in the background too. Leon Morris, that wonderful, great New Testament scholar, quoted one rabbi that said, quote, to eat the bread of a Samaritan is like one that eats the flesh of swine. Something, of course, forbidden and made you unclean. And so why the animosity and hate between Jews and Samaritans? Well, after King David and Solomon led a united Israel, the kingdom, some of you know, a lot of you know, was split into two. You had the northern kingdom called the Kingdom of Israel, that included where we're at right now in this narrative of Samaria. And then you had the southern kingdom called the kingdom of Judah that included the holy city of Jerusalem where Jesus was just coming from and doing ministry. But about 700 years or so before Jesus came to earth, the kingdom of Israel, the northern, which included Samaria, was overtaken and conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And so out with the Israelites, in with foreign. Gentiles. But over time, there was then this mixing of the two people groups. And the Israelites that remained intermarried and took on two religions essentially the worship of Yahweh, and then mixed that with the worship of foreign gods and idols. And there was a mix of their religions, and that angered the southern, uh, this mix of religions angered the southern kingdom dwellers so much that they refused to have anything to do with them. Samaria, by the way, is what we know today as the much fought over geopolitical land called the West Bank. Now, that was a very, very short summary of the enmity between the two, but we need to move on, but we're going to get some more and more details as we go along here and there. But here we are with Jesus, who had much fanfare and commotion surrounding him in Jerusalem for Jewish leaders always already wanting to kill him, seeming as such an a, a, a imminent threat to thousands clamoring to see more of him, And his miracles and signs. So it's odd to have this quiet moment. Because we spent the last several months in chapters 1 through 3. Now he has this quiet moment. Next to a famous well in the middle of the day. Where this unsuspecting woman arrives. Jesus is parched. And so he politely asks for water. Now there were three social scandals that happened when Jesus conversed with the woman. Three boundaries crossed. Number one is that Jesus, a Jew, was not supposed to talk with the Samaritan. So an ethnic boundary was crossed. Number two, Jesus, a man, was not supposed to talk alone with a woman. Rick Phillips notes that a rabbi would lose his reputation if he spoke publicly to any woman, even of his own family. So a gender boundary was crossed. And then finally, number three, Jesus crossed a religious boundary too. He was to abide what scholars refer to as this man-made temple rule. They he was not even to share utensils with the Samaritan. This is why the woman is surprised in verse 9. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he risk it all to confront and converse with this woman? Well, this is a microcosm of the larger spiritual reality of Jesus' purpose on earth. This is Jesus crossing the border into humanity's plight, humanity's darkness, to offer the hope of the gospel. And he did this out of his true character, his love. William Barclay once wrote, here is God so loving the world, not in theory, but in action. He welcomed a detour of the journey so that he could have this encounter with this woman to offer the gospel. I'm sure the disciples are saying, shouldn't we go this way? This is pre-GPS, but shouldn't we go east and then, then north? And he says, no, let's take a detour to this place and to this well. He did this to offer the gospel, to share the light with, again, an unsuspecting woman who most readers of the gospel back 2,000 years ago would never picture or assume Jesus would want to encounter at all. I had interned at a church in Philadelphia called 10th Presbyterian Church, a very historic church uh, over 150 years old. Some of you who are older here will know the name uh, Donald Barnhouse long time pastor and preacher, uh, radio personality, et cetera, et cetera, uh, back in the 20th century. And he wrote about, in in relation to this, he wrote about a soldier returning from war. And first they landed in San Francisco and they docked on the west coast. And his final destination though, was home in Philadelphia. But on the way there, he made a distinct detour to Florida. And everyone like, why would you do that? What a waste of money. What a, a waste of time to do that. Well, it's because his fiance was there. So even though his true destination was Philadelphia, he gladly took that detour. Why? Because of love. And of course, this was already planned in Jesus' mission. Nothing was a surprise to him. Jesus in his divine nature was omniscient, meaning his complete and perfect knowledge of all things, our thoughts and all the things that happen in this world. And so here is Jesus setting before us this wonderful pattern and taking the gospel to whomever and whenever. Here is a Samaritan, ignorant as she was because of the mixing of her religion, is going to get the surprise of her life as she'll later understand this is the Christ who seeks to include her people in God's redemptive plan. Rico Tice, a wonderful evangelist and pastor in England, talks about a point in our evangelism that he calls, quote, crossing the pain barrier, crossing the pain barrier barrier that if we really want to share the good news of Jesus Christ there has to be a point and it doesn't have to be the first encounter of course there could be a friendship there could be a relationship that 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 um, buds and, and that you nurture but there actually has to be a point where we actually talk about the gospel and all that's entailed that's evangelism including the recognition that we're all sinners, needing the forgiveness and mercy and grace of our Lord, that we're all in the same boat, as we mentioned earlier in the service, and that through faith and repentance, those twin graces made possible through the gift of God, oh, then, therefore, we can be saved. And Jesus was never afraid to cross this pain barrier because he was the gospel in himself. What John the Baptist declared in chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin Of the world. So let's pick it up again at verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Theologians call chapter 3 and then 4 the introduction of Jesus the evangelist. And we'll compare Nicodemus, that we spent several weeks in that encounter with Nicodemus, to this woman at the well later on. But notice how quickly. Jesus gets into speaking about the spiritual rather than the literal. And, of course, is often confusing at first to those he is speaking to. We saw that with Nicodemus also. But even though we have to move rather quickly through this long passage this morning, let's take some time to unpack verse 10 and all its wonderful meaning. First of all, Jesus is offering the gospel as a gift. A gift. Jesus is not saying, oh, here, here's another uh, Uh, ignorant person that I can maybe sell my product to. It's not, hey, if you have 10 minutes, please let me sell you on this religious program I've created that if you do these 50 things and obey them perfectly, you'll have clearer skin, you'll make 100,000 by the end of the year, and you'll be religiously happy all of your days. No, Jesus is not a salesman. He is the Lord. And he is not selling anything. He is rather offering a gift a gift of faith to believe, a gift that leads to the salvation of her soul, all over a simple request for a drink of water. And if you really knew who you were talking to, you'd bow before him because he is the only one that can offer not stale well water, but living water, meaning the grace of our God. Living in the Old Testament, you can think about Jeremiah 2.13, Psalm 36.9, speak about this divine connotation. I'll read Psalm 36 for you. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And he'll explain this more later on. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, "Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drink drink from it himself as did his sons and his livestock." You see, much like Nicodemus, he was so confused A chapter earlier when Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus was thinking literally, how do I get born again? And this woman is obviously missing the point in talking about the literal well in front of her, the literal water beneath them. But by the way, and just I won't spend a lot of time on this, there is some historical context here, this biblical context. This well that they're at is at the foot of Mount Gerizim where the well was the deepest in the region and I think can still be accessed today, went down over a hundred feet. Scholars say probably back then even deeper than that. But as she is completely missing Jesus' point, she is almost looking to him for some miracle product. Look again in your Bibles, verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up To eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, not so sure at this point she is understanding, but she would rather have some product soldier her that she wouldn't have to embarrassingly come to the well any longer. Scholars point out that a woman wouldn't normally come out at noon in the midday sun, but most likely other women wouldn't want to be seen around her as we'll soon find out her troubled background. So Jesus is stating a a plain truth known to all mankind that although water can be so refreshing and nourishing, the body continually needs that to survive the rest of your life. It's not just a once a day thing. You'll perpetually have this need and your body was created by God in realizing this need by causing you to thirst again and again. You know, sometimes I laugh in the middle of a grocery aisle, and especially the boutique fancy ones, because they're always trying to sell the latest products and package them in a way that entices your imagination, persuades you that this product is going to change your life and make you super healthy. And I laugh, though, when they try this in the water aisle, and I'm like, this works everywhere else, but really, guys, like the water aisle. I mean, they have such a big market for this now. Your fancy water from a certain island, untouched for millions of years. Your water purified to the the hundreds, to the thousands degree, only to find out some companies just bottle tap water. Or your water not stored in that evil, bad plastic. But now we have water in fancy cardboard boxes. And you take that off the shelf, and you look at the price, and it's $4.99 for 16 ounces. And you laugh out loud. And then you buy them. (laughs) I'm just kidding, sort of. (laughs) Got to try it once. But we have these fancy reverse osmosis things you can install in your houses or super duper filters. By all means, use them and drink cleaner water. That's great. But guess what? We're all going to get thirsty again and again and again. Jesus is not anti-water. Jesus is trying to tell this woman that she should not forsake the true living water. Jesus himself. I referenced Jeremiah 2.13 a minute ago, but I didn't read it, but this is what God says here. This is very important for our text today. God says in Jeremiah 2, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Man. We're getting to real talk territory, aren't we? God says when you forsake him, meaning when you don't believe in him, trust in him, you are a broken cistern, a broken container that can hold no true water. How relevant and heart-hitting is that, friends? That we can try to fool God all we want and chase after everything in this world and deny the foundation of living water and you think you'll be getting your way because you see water rise up in your tiny worthless buckets only to see the water empty out just as quickly as you think you could put something in. This is a great picture of what we, say, what we said last chapter when Jesus said, people love darkness over light. And the irony is they chose the broken vessel that can't hold anything for perhaps a quick fix, a quick attempt at solving the purpose of life, a quick man-made remedy to fill, fulfill all desires and needs, only to feel empty in the end over and over again. It is so ironic. I want to be satisfied, satisfied, but I know this won't satisfy, but I'm going to keep doing that every day, every week, every month, every year of my life. And believe me in the spiritual sense, oh, this happens every night if you are without a relationship with God, where all the day's toils might have brought you some temporary satisfaction or relief. But in the calculus of the spiritual, deep down, there is this emptiness as you go to bed. And this plays out in what Jesus sees in this woman. He is omniscient. He knows all things in the universe and even in this one individual and you also. So she's asking how she can get this for herself. Look at verse 16 then. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. I'll explain that in a moment. But this is Jesus entering into the pain barrier. He's getting down to the nitty-gritty. He is perceiving and seeing that in her ignorance of her religion and her utter immorality, she is one that has been forsaking God and making broken cisterns for herself that can hold no water. A very quick backdrop to what she's trying to argue. When When the Israelites entered into the Promised Land, they were instructed about two mountains, Mount Gerizim, where they're at right now, where they're at the bottom of, was meant to represent God's blessings if they followed God and what he commanded. The other mountain, though, was, count, was called Mount Ebel, the mount to remind them about the curses of God if they indeed disobeyed. There, an altar was to be built because God was already providing a way to sacrifice when they would indeed fail. God knew this. As one theologian notes, that this prefigures the once and for all sacrifice that we discussed during Holy Week earlier this month. But until then, yes, there would be sacrifice that would need to be made because of their disobedience and sin. The Samaritans hated the southern kingdom, hated the idea of worshiping then later in Mount Zion and Jerusalem. So they decided to edit the Hebrew Bible to make Mount Gerizim the place to truly worship God. Isn't that a thing? That's really brave. And I, I, I didn't know this, but the Samaritans, their Bible only included the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy the book of Moses, the books of Moses. But Rick Phillips points out that they edited Deuteronomy 27.4 to place Mount Gerizim as the place to build an altar when they came into the promised land and not, not Mount Ebel. It's just crazy to think through this. They actually built a temple on Mount Gerizim in rebellion against what God has said. And that was actually later destroyed by the Jews about 150 years before this encounter at the well. And so I agree with the theologian that this must have been an eerie, eerie scene with the temple destroyed in the background of this conversation. But to Jesus' main point about any of this, and notice how the woman wanted to change the topic quickly from Jesus' knowledge of her immoral backdrop, look at verse 23 through 26, the final portion of our passage. But the hour is coming, Jesus says, is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And the original Greek, it's, it's very much saying, Jesus saying, I am. I am In the Gospel of John, whenever the hour is mentioned, that is tied to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, most notably about his crucifixion, that when Jesus accomplishes in perfection what he has come to earth to do. So people wouldn't have to worry about which mountain they need to go to and worship on. We worship in the spirit of Christ, but also because those who are saved are born of the spirit. So our worship is not just this outward physical showing up, but a communion with our Lord through the Spirit, not based on any geographical location, but literally we can worship God from anywhere in spirit, but also to worship in truth. Jesus knew that the Old Testament texts were pointing to himself. Salvation comes from the Jews. It says that, uh, he says back in verse 22, that's not to be this ethnic superiority concept, but that through the line of the Davidic king, would come the anointed one, the Messiah. That's why we read from Samuel earlier in the service. And at this point she speaks of the Messiah, much like the religious leader Nicodemus, she understands the categories of the prophecies and can in her own right see that he's right in front of her. And he states this monumentally significant proclamation that he is the I am. Many of us recall that this is what God said of himself to Moses, I am who I am a huge theme later in the book of John and all the I am statements that that Jesus would teach himself. One of the the bigger reasons why I wanted to preach you, John, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. This is the only instance before Jesus' trial that acknowledges publicly that he is the I am. And get this, he does this for a Samaritan woman, for her salvation. He offers her this truth. Jesus didn't mind detours. He was sovereign over all of them, sovereign over his own journey. Jesus was not afraid to cross boundaries so that the lost can truly be found and saved. But he had one ultimate leg of the journey in the end, of course. To make all the previous detours worthwhile, he had to go to Samaria. Well, he had to endure this final leg. And that was his journey to the cross. Jesus knew it wasn't just enough to speak and to be with these people. He had to actually die for them to make salvation truly theirs. And for us, too, that if we believe in him, rest in his finished work, we too can experience the spring water welling up into eternal life, as he says. But you might have noticed in verse 14 that Jesus said, everyone drinks regular water will thirst again, but whoever, whoever drinks the true spiritual living water of Christ will never thirst again. That whoever means that it's not enough to put your hands together and think the message of the gospel is such a sweet thing, but one actually has to receive the gift of salvation through believing, through faith, to actually drink from the living water of our Lord and Savior. Maybe this is the invitation you needed to hear this day, also. Some might erroneously think that you're not worthy enough to be saved. You're, you're I really relate to this woman, that nobody wants to even be around me. Everybody looks at me as just shame in my past. Uh, Immoral acts and you say oh but surely Robin this is for people that have had a pretty smooth life that's who are filling the seats here no we're included all in this master plan those who are reputable those who are not reputable those who seem outwardly moral to those desperately immoral and that if Jesus knew all the things you were about or did oh you think he could not even look at me this day Well, today's narrative says that he actually does know everything and can still turn towards you in love. Can you imagine that? I know it's just a human nature thing that we we compartmentalize things. We want to store things in our hearts that we think God will never see. But yet he still sees everything and yet he still will turn to you in love. It's just mind-boggling. The truth is none of us are worthy. None of us are good enough. None of us are deserving. It's quite the opposite. The gospel says that you too can be saved if you place your trust in him and that all sins will be washed, all shame covered, and a new creation you will be. Because, friends, we need to hear this counteroffer. The world is not simply offering tap water but toxic seawater. The human body can't take on seawater. Why? Because our kidneys can't filter out the salt content and we would surely die if we kept on drinking from that source but the problem with sin and fallenness of mankind is that we have not acquired the taste buds to tell what is salt water and what is pure spiritual water and that's why we drink drink and that's why we drink some more clueless of what's happening to us but thanks be to God when he enlightens our spiritual eyes to see and our spiritual ears to hear and our spiritual taste buds to finally taste we will gladly find and see from God's word and his spirit what is actually living water. That is Christ Jesus alone. And what is of the traps and pitfalls and broken cisterns of our sinful hearts and the spoiled offerings of this world. And, and so come back next week and see what happens to this woman, how she responds after Jesus declares himself as God. But pray, even right now, pray for your soul. Pray for the one near you or next to you or in front of you or behind you that we lay down broken cisterns at his feet and then in turn feast, feed, drink from the true source of eternal life, our great fountain of living water. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, how great to realize that you reach out to the educated, the political leaders, the morally upright, the well-respected, but utterly lost people like Nicodemus. But also to the ridiculed, the forgotten, the shamed, the immoral, the least respected, the one who might have thought of herself as damaged goods, and to this sinner you called to be saved also. Thank you, Lord, that ethnicity, skin color, depths of sin, horrid backgrounds, or pharisaical attempts at earning our salvation are no barriers for you in the gospel. Thank you that you save us regardless as we have the gift of faith to receive and believe in the Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.